Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. In Surfside, the painstaking work continues. Crews peeling layer after layer of debris in search of bodies at the site of the Champlain Tower's collapse. Officials say it will take weeks before that task is finished. Investigators are working to figure out the cause of the collapse. Building residents and the families of those killed have filed lawsuits in a legal battle that could stretch on for years. And all around Florida, there are concerns about building safety, timely inspections, and the responsibility of condominium associations. We're going to explore those bigger questions on today's show. First, we hear from Danny Rivero. He's a reporter at WLRN, the public radio station in Miami. So just starting off, um, as the work continues in Surfside at Champlain Towers with this recovery operation, what are we learning about other condo communities in South Florida and around the state that might have some of these same building issues or might have some of these same kind of liability issues that are that have cropped up in, in Surfside? Right. So what we're seeing right now in Miami-Dade County and Broward County in particular is basically a crackdown on deferred enforcement of these 40-year certifications. You know, in, in Surfside, the building collapse happened just as the building was reaching 40 years old. And so in Miami-Dade and Broward counties, it means that they need to undergo a structural evaluation to make sure that the building is structurally safe for residents. And they were starting that process. They were starting to do the necessary repairs to, to be certified, basically, that the building was safe. After this collapse, it has really turned out, you know, the public is turning an eye to the fact that enforcement of these 40-year certifications has just not been happening. Um, in almost every municipality, Miami-Dade County has several buildings that it owns that has not met its own requirements. So a lot of the way that this is running is that in the wake of this tragedy, the governments at all levels are basically doing a crackdown and, and some people are starting to to question what the government's role in this was, you know, on the on the on the back end on enforcement and also on the front end with, you know, the permitting process and all the other parts that go into this as well. As you talk about that, you talk about, you know, the government's role. I mean, one of the issues I, I think is which government, right? Because, you know, Miami-Dade here in, in, on our side of the state in Pinellas County, especially where you have some of these similar buildings, there are so many different municipal municipalities on top of the county government, on top of the state government. There's this kind of this question of who's ultimately responsible for, for doing the, these inspections and making sure that these buildings are, are in decent shape. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, as, as it is now, as it exists in the, the governmental structure in the state of Florida, it's really like a hot potato issue. The Miami-Dade County government and the Broward County governments do have their own programs and they should be doing their own enforcement according to what's on the books. But the cities also play a role if it's within city limits on doing their kind of enforcement. But we should keep in mind, you know, even here on the East Coast, 
If you go a little bit north, Palm Beach County, they don't even have these these recertifications. That's not on the books at all whatsoever. So now in Palm Beach County, they're starting to, some people are starting to ask, hey, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should have that here. But to your larger point, it, it's it's wide open in the state of Florida. You know, uh, Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, Pasco, to my knowledge, they don't have anything of this sort that's that's on the books. You know, we have the Democratic state senator here, Jason Pizzo. I've talked to him several times. He represents Surfside and Miami Beach, and he's basically calling for some kind of statewide across the board framework on this, whether that would be, um, you know, something for every county or something for specifically coastal counties or properties that fall within the coastal zone. It's kind of yet to be determined, you know, there's nothing that's written, but it's it's definitely part of the the chatter that's starting to happen around this. With these building inspections that are supposed to happen in, in Miami-Dade and Broward, do the county governments and whichever county agencies are supposed to be doing this, do they have the staffing power, the bandwidth to to do all of the inspections that, that they need to do? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and like I said, I, we're really in the the front end of what I foresee is going to be a really long tail discussion and reevaluation of these things. Um, we do know that a lot of the resources in county and municipal governments goes towards development. And that means like new constructions, you know, you have to submit plans. You need, you need inspections for any construction that's been ongoing, but for a long time, that kind of governmental role on existing structures and existing buildings has really kind of been lacking. So, you know, I've talked to to people that run condo associations and they've said, you know, it's almost impossible to get permitting, to get inspectors from the city in here in a timely manner, because all of those resources go towards the current development of the new buildings and the ones that have been there for a long time basically fall by the wayside. So there, there might really be you know, resources, questions about, are they staffed enough or are they staffed enough? Um, but they're being, you know, pooled to do one thing instead of the other thing. And it's a kind of a balancing act. And, uh, you know, we're, we're at the beginning of those conversations, but I do anticipate that they will be interesting. You think about Florida and growth and we're all about growth in Florida. And I think especially about Miami and, and how the skyline of downtown Miami has changed so much just even in the past few years with all the high rise construction that's gone up. You, you would have to imagine that, um, you know, building and planning departments in Miami-Dade and all the urban counties in Florida are probably preoccupied with, you know, dealing with, you know, all the kind of the incoming for all this new construction and just staying on top of that is enough of a challenge when you've also got these other older buildings that that need attention. Right. And it, you know, it's it's not just coastal communities either. I mean, it's the, the the state of Florida is, you know, if it has an ethos, it's low regulation, pro growth. And in a lot of, you know, in typical times, you know, that's that's welcomed by the general public, I, w- I would say. But it's when you have a an emergency situation where it really all comes into question. So at the at the state level, you know, there's the division of, of condominiums, which is basically the state agency that's in charge of oversight for condos and also mobile homes and timeshares. The total budget at the state level for overseeing all of the above is seven and a half million dollars. 
and there's about four and a half million condos in the state of Florida. So when you talk about, you know, little regulation, like I said, that sounds really good to a lot of people, but you're that, that's an extraordinarily little amount of government oversight of, of any part of this process. And, and, and I think the numbers speak for themselves. It's pretty shocking, actually. It's like $1.60 per unit in oversight, which is very low. Let's turn to condos specifically, because there are all these, these liability questions um, with the Champlain Towers collapse, because you've got the condo association, you've got the folks who lived in the building, they have insurance policies of their own. Um, and now there's the possibility of a legal fight that could drag out for several years as courts and insurance companies and the tenants of the building uh, and their attorneys try to come try to come to come to some kind of consensus about who is liable for the collapse. Right. I mean, the it's it's a legal fight that I foresee, you know, being dragged out over years. And, and it you don't have to it's not a stretch of the imagination to, to see that it's going to be very contentious because the main thing to keep in, in mind when, you know, everyone, including the media is kind of, and, and me as a member of the media, as, as we point fingers and point to things that, that are known or that should have been known, et cetera, is that a collapse of this kind was completely unprecedented. Um, this something of this magnitude has never in the history of this country happened. So, so when you say, you know, so-and-so should have known better, it's going to be a real legal question to say, okay, maybe they should have known better. They should have done X, Y, or Z, but could they have foreseen a collapse like this happening? That is going to be what a lot of the lawsuits and liabilities I, I imagine will hang on. And it's, uh, it's going to be hard sell if you're saying that, that these people should have known that the condo collapse was going to happen. I mean, clearly people knew that there were issues. There was bickering at the, the condo association and board level um, about what to do with it or how quickly to, to, to move on it. You know, the, the city had a role. They didn't really explain to anyone from what we've seen that this was something incredibly urgent and pressing because a kind of collapse like this would happen. You know, it, from everything we've learned so far, we're connecting dots. But to, to say that people should have known that the building was going to collapse, I think that's what a lot of the the legal issues and, and lawsuits are going to hang on. And, you know, the reality is I, I, I can't imagine anyone actually saw a building collapse in their, in their imagination because it didn't ever happen before. Well, that leads me to something that, that governor DeSantis said last week, he said that uh, Champlain towers, that, that it had problems from the time that it was built. Do we know if that's true? What, what do we know about the, the construction history of this building and, and anything that might have been uh, suspect? Right. We do know because it, it was it was in several engineer reports um, that have come out prior to the collapse. The concrete slab that the pool area was built upon was built flat, which is, you know, it's not something that's done because... Things in Florida especially are built at a, at a slope because it provides drainage. And what happened in Champlain, and this is well documented, that goes back to the earliest construction, is that the concrete slab that the pool was built on was completely flat. So that led over time to water pooling on it and dripping down and basically causing corrosion of the rebar and the pillars and the concrete that holds the structure up. So, so the governor is right on that. 
Um, but I will say that's one part of the question because the fact of this deficiency was known. And once you move beyond that, it's okay, we knew about it. What did anyone do about it? And so, so it's the governor is correct, but that's, that's the beginning of the questions. I wouldn't say that's the, the end of the questions. You mentioned condo boards earlier, and that's kind of one of the other things that this strategy is highlighted. These are volunteer boards and like any, you know, volunteer operation, some are going to be better run than others. Um, what more have we learned about how condo boards operate or how may they may not operate in some places? Right. Well, at least here in South Florida, condo boards have a reputation that's been around for a very long time as being dysfunctional, as having kind of pervasive low-level corruption. Um, and, and that's not just, you know, popular opinion. That's been, um, that, that, that has, been, has been proven to be the case. Um, where you have condo board members sometimes giving a contract to someone who's a, who's a cousin of theirs and they can get a kickback or whatnot. So so these kind of things have, have contributed to just a, a, a distrust, I would say, between the, the general public and the residents that live in the building and the condo boards, um, which doesn't help when there's really serious issues that need to be addressed because some people reflexively push back on it and say, no, 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 like that's not a real problem that needs a million dollars of fixing. You're trying to line your pockets. Generally, even if we're talking about a condo board that's doing everything right and that there is none of that uh, shady business happening, an issue is that residents can actually vote out a condo board if they make decisions that they don't like. So if, if a condo board says, hey, we need a million dollars of repairs in the building, residents can actually band together and vote that board out and maybe get a board in there that is less likely to make those kind of assessments. And, um, you know, it is a democratic kind of system, you know, it's, it's collectively owned a condo building. So it's, it's somewhat socialistic, not in the, like a politically inflammatory kind of way or like making it political, but actually just describing what it is. It's a collectively owned thing. People collectively make decisions about it. Sometimes they push those hard decisions down the, the road. You know, it's hard to get everyone on the same page because at the end of the day, you're going to be taking money from everyone that lives in the building. And some people that live in the building are not going to be able to afford that money. And so it becomes incredibly troubling just at a condo level, internal building politics level. I think of sometimes when I, I drive around and I see either new construction or older buildings and a realtors put out a sign that says no HOA, no CDD. And you know, that might sound great for somebody who's looking for a, a real estate deal, but if problems uh, occur in the building, then there's nobody for you to turn to if there's no HOA or there's no kind of authority that's, that's overseeing the upkeep of, of, of these buildings. I think that that's a great point. And that's why, you know, there, there's some fears from the, the real estate industry here, at least, at least locally that, this collapse and and all the the newfound scrutiny that's going on to H HOAs and how they work, how they don't work in some ways, could really hurt the condo market actually because people are seeing, oh wow, you know I could own a condo, but I don't actually have any you know much say in the decisions about this place. So maybe it would be better for me to go for a single family house where I can make all the decisions. And to your point about a building not having an HOA, I mean. It, 
might sound good, but at, at some point people are going to have to come together in that kind of situation and make collective decisions. You know, it's not a, you're not an individual who lives in an Island. If you live in a building with several other people, you know, you guys literally have the same roof over your heads and whether it's an HOA or some kind of informal decision-making process, you're clearly going to have to get buy-in from other people. In your reporting, what, what questions are you still looking for answers to, whether it's specifically with the Champlain Towers collapse or some of these broader issues that we've talked about with building inspection and, and, and condos and HOAs and so on? I think the some of the biggest... You know, obviously there's a Champlain Towers it's, itself and, and what happened to it, what led up to it. You know, there's a federal investigation happening now. Um, you know, we'll see what, what kind of legislative changes might happen. You know, Miami-Dade County, our mayor, Daniela Levine-Cava, has, has promised that, that legislative changes will happen once there's a better understanding. Um, so that's one thing. But, uh, you know, the other part is, is every day we're learning more about how this these inspections and recertification processes were not working. You know, there's there's one thing where it's the, the letter of what's written. And then the other part of it is how does it actually play out? And we're learning it every day that these things were not playing out the way that they were written, that the inspectors and, and engineers are basically overworked, that things are kicked routinely kicked down the road. So there's just these long standing issues and a lot of the the older buildings, the residents are just very worried, you know, so that's where we're looking. There's there's some buildings that could be ev evacuated, possibly, if they don't meet the, some of these deadlines coming from these enforcement crackdowns, or, you know, they could be facing millions of dollars in urgent repairs that they weren't planning for. So all of the above is really going to be an ongoing thing for the foreseeable future, I think. All right, Danny, I think that's it for my questions. Anything else you want to say? Anything I didn't ask you about that uh, you think I should? Just like, a, I guess, an update on the where the search and rescue stuff is. You know, there's the the current count is um, that there's 94 confirmed dead in the Champlain Towers South Building. Um, of those, 83 have been identified. And there's still 22 missing people right now, according to Miami-Dade County. Um, and it, you know, they expect to, to fully have the rubble sorted through within the next week or two. So the, the, the entire magnitude of the thing is, is still slowly unfolding. Well, Danny, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, and all of us here really appreciate the work that you and your, and your colleagues have done covering this. Um, I, I know that the, the last few weeks have, have, got to have been really challenging for all of you, but just know that we and, and I'm sure all the other stations in Florida really, really appreciate what you're doing. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Honestly, thank you. That was Danny Rivero, reporter at WLRN in Miami. We've got links to the station's coverage of the Surfside Collapse at WUSFnews.org. You're listening to Florida Matters. The conversation continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Today, we're looking at the impact of the building collapse in Surfside. 
The disaster has raised new questions about condominium insurance, and for answers, we turned to Patricia Bourne. She teaches in the Risk Management and Insurance Program at Florida State University's College of Business. What do we know, what do you know so far about how the insurance claims process will play out for uh, for residents and, and victims at, uh, at the Champlain Tower and in Surfside? I think there's going to be a lot of liability claims that um, it's kind of un- unknown now how they'll all play out because until we know the cause of the collapse, what decisions were made or, or whose activities led to or you know, could have prevented the collapse, it's not clear where liability is going to be um, directed. It could be at the condo association, you know, the, the board. It could be with city inspectors. Um, you know, until, until that gets ironed out, I don't think there's a really clear answer to you know, how the people who are affected will be compensated and you know, how, how claims for, say, lost property or for the, the property damage, the, the value of the condos, um, you know, where, where the compensation for that is going to come from. I, I think it's, it's still a little bit too soon to, to tease that all out of um, what's happened here. What kind of changes do you think we might see in insurance for condo buildings and for condo owners going forward because of some of the issues that have that have uh, cropped up here? You know, the insurance companies will price the coverage for a condo based on the original building codes and and some inspection information. I I think maybe what we're going to see is just more aggressive follow up with what condo associations are doing to the structures and what, what kind of repairs they're making. I think insurance companies have probably sat back a little bit, assuming that the condo associations are, are doing the right thing and in, in keeping up with repairs of, the, of these buildings and you know relying maybe too much on the fact that there are um, you know, mandatory inspections at some point. Um, but what I, what I anticipate is the condo insurance, the, the condo association insurance policies are going to probably start to, to include conditions, uh, new conditions for, you know, maintenance of some, of some sort, or at least providing evidence if you want to continue your coverage that, that uh, condo associations have to have to show some additional evidence that maybe they didn't have to in the past. And, and you know, insurance companies have always had the ability to ask for, um, this type of information from a condo association, I, I just think that they're going to probably pay a little bit stronger attention to that now after this this tragedy. For condo owners out there who, who are listening to this, what advice would you give them in terms of what they need to have in, in, in their insurance and to make sure that they have enough coverage if, God forbid, there's a collapse, but any kind of other fire or any kind of other thing that, that might cause catastrophic damage to the building that they're living in? As a condo owner, you buy coverage for your own belongings and the interior. But it's it's important to know whether or not the condo association has, has secured adequate coverage. Um, yes, it's, it's a difficult thing to evaluate because if you're one of 20, 30 condo owners, you know, maybe you're not aware of what the risk to the entire building might look like, but you, know, you can certainly seek out some um, advice as to whether the condo association has obtained adequate coverage. And then along with that is 
you know, to, to think hard about the dues you're paying to the homeowners association for the reserves that are put aside in order to make repairs as they're needed. So, you know, in, where I live, we recently had an inspection done and, and the inspector pointed out things that would need to be done over the next five to 10 years. And we set up a financing plan among all of the, the owners to make sure that we're collecting enough in dues so that as these repairs, say a new roof or painting, you know, needs to be done, that it won't be, you know, one big hit to everybody as an assess assessment. Instead, you know, we will have covered it and built up the reserves. So condo owners, you know, really should pay, pay attention to that. A really low uh, HOA due, dues amount might look like a good thing when you're, when you're buying into a property. But if that, if that low amount of dues is, is basically representing an insufficient amount of reserve for future repairs, then, you know, down the road, things can get pretty bad. I think about all the time when I'm driving past new construction and I see signs uh, advertising condos that say no HOA fees, no CDD fees. Well, that might be a great deal uh, for you if you're, you know, you're making your payments every month or looking to get your foot in the door. But like you say, if there are problems down the road, then there's not going to be adequate money to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, that, the money has to come from somewhere. <laughs> and uh, if you're if you're living in in a condo and you know some, things are happening around that condo, that that's that's partly on you to to put up the funds to to pay for it. I've talked to you before about some of the issues with with homeowners insurance and property insurance in Florida, and and how hard it is for homeowners to get and maintain coverage, and also some of the pressures that insurers feel doing business here. Does what happened in Surfside, is, is that going to make it more difficult for people who own units and condos to get insurance or are insurance companies maybe going to take a second look at, at doing business in Florida? As I said, it's, it's a wake up call to maybe get a little bit more aggressive at, at looking at that risk. Uh, you know, we, we might see, a bigger change in the industry if if this suggested that well thousands of buildings in Florida are are going to fall over and it's just that's just not the case this is I think this is a very rare uh, situation but uh, turns into a, an opportunity for the insurance industry to to say you know we we need to better evaluate the risk that we're facing here so you know will will coverage to condo associations go up maybe. Um, because it's got to incorporate now the, the added cost of monitoring or uh, assessing the risk. But uh, for the individual con condo owner, I, I, I don't see that this is going to lead to a problem getting getting insurance for you know, contents coverage from inside the condo. You know, I, I think most insurers would say that the risk of um, a condo owner making a claim is not is very unlikely to be related to a collapse. There's going to be more risk on the side of fires and other flood flood type damages, you know, water damages, than there will be for for collapse. So I, I really don't see this as being something that's going to shake up the industry a whole lot uh, in terms of participation. Well, uh, it was great chatting with you again. Um, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. That was Patricia Bourne from the Risk Management and Insurance Program at Florida State University's College of Business. 
I spoke with Patricia a couple of weeks ago about changes to homeowners insurance in Florida. You can find that conversation at WUSFnews.org. It's also where you can subscribe to the Florida Matters podcast. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening.